This is the WA Country Hour with Michelle Stanley on ABC Radio WA. Yes, hello, good afternoon to you. Today looking at water management in Western Australia and some changes, well, actually not changes at all. The state government has decided not to go ahead with proposed changes to WA's water resources management system. You'll hear what the state's ag industry makes of that announcement after half past 12 this afternoon. No markets today, plenty of people firmly on holidays, but of course we'll get the outlook for the state's weather over the weekend and into next week, that coming up at 12.30. Also, given it's the 22nd of December, I'm going to take a bit of a moment to reflect on what Christmas looks like across our great state from unique gifts to memories of Christmases gone by uh, also the Christmas tree industry itself we'll take a look at how that's tracking this year and this time last year can you remember the goats at the end of the last country hour that was just before Christmas day yeah Believe it or not, this was the very last segment of the Country Hour. Our executive producer, Richard Hudson, is to blame. He chose that Christmas song and he has another one lined up for you. He hasn't told me what it is. He hasn't even let me hear it. I'm pretty nervous, but make sure you stay tuned for that. A rather country Christmas song for you on the Country Hour this afternoon. Good to have your company at seven minutes past 12. We can turn that off sharpish, I reckon. Michelle Stanley along this afternoon. And, of course, if you'd like to get in touch, 0448. Uh, no, I'm going to forget the, the number if I read it out to you, so bear with me. I'll get the right number in front of me. Now, the grain harvest in WA, it's pretty much done and dusted as we head into Christmas. The last few tonnes are slowly trickling into bins. And even though yields have been down, not quite reaching the expected four and a half million tonnes, for the most part, the quality of the state's wheat crop has been exceptional. Michael Lamond is the author of the Grain Industry of WA Crop Report. Michael, just how good has the quality been this year? Well, the, the grain quality this year has been it's been incredible, Michelle. I mean, it, you know, at the start of harvest, when it started in the Gerald Port Zone, there was a lot of the early loads came in with very high screenings and high protein. But what's eventuated is that quite a big proportion of the grain that's been delivered is actually gone into the premium grades, whether it's H1, H2, so the hard grades or the other soft premium grades. There still is a lot of utility hard, that's the high screenings hard, but the... Um, the percentage that's going into those premium grades was just, you know, it's quite extraordinary, really. I mean, it, you know, in, in some port zones, it's, you know, 70 to 80% of deliveries. Um, and when you think about it, the very quick, hard finish, soft, you know, like we've had these soft finishes for the last couple of years, and but this year was was hot and dry and, um, it, you know, really cut out and, and everyone was expecting the worst, you know, but it, it just hasn't um, ended up like that. And compared to last year, 2022, there was virtually zero hard grade. Mm -hmm. That's right, Michelle. Like in, in last year, there was, you know, we had a very 
a mild finish to the growing season. It was a it was a it was a very slow finish, mild temperatures, you know, cool temperatures, and a long grain field field period, which contributed to the extraordinary you know, amount of tons that we received. And when you get those sort of finishes, um, you know, the grain has plenty of time to fill, and and yeah, and there was virtually, and that you get the dilution of protein for the yield. So there was virtually no hard wheat at all last year, and this year. You know, there's there's like you know nearly fifty percent of the total grain that's produced is in those harder grades. So, but what, you know, what's really extraordinary is the lack of screenings in it. So, I mean, that's probably the big story, really. So the lack of screenings so that that was unexpected. Yeah, it was it was totally unexpected because you know, the way the season finished right across the state, we, you know, we just really had no spring and we didn't get a, a big winter either. So there wasn't a lot of subsoil moisture reserves, and then the lack of rain in the spring meant that the the crops just ran out of steam very quickly. And, you know, when you get that happening, you normally get a lot of screenings, whereas this year we didn't. And we, you know, there's, there's probably a lot of reasons for it, but, you know, probably one of the main ones, I think, is that growers did really back off on fertiliser earlier than they normally would. They'd come off the back of a couple of good years, so they knew that the uh, the nutrient status of their soils was probably a little bit, you know, lower than normal. So they were very conscious that they probably had to you know, to feed the crops. But what's happened, what, what happened was we had a, the prognosis for the season wasn't very good. We didn't have a lot of subsoil moisture. In some areas, the break was a bit later. So growers made a conscious decision early on to back off on fertiliser, particularly nitrogen. So the crops that had most of their fertiliser up front and not a lot during the season, which is normally the case, um, they, they looked bulked up, but they didn't produce you know, large head size or a lot of tillers. And so what the, the sites that were there to be filled uh, were able to be filled. In, in part, I think it's the, it was just the ability of the plants to adjust to the season, but also the growers did as well. Are there particular areas, I mean, there were some particularly dry parts of the state. Did, did the mm-hmm. high quality touch all regions or were there some that didn't quite make the cut? Yeah, it was, it was across all region. I mean, it did very little depending on where you were. There was, of course, there, there was a lot of screenings in the, you know, north of the Great Eastern Highway. Um, you know, it was very dry. But, you know, across the zones, it was, you know, just a very high percentage right across the whole all, the whole state. And what about some of the other grains, so, you know, barley, canola? Um, do they also see as good a quality or is it was it lacking elsewhere? Well, it was interesting. The barley, the barley really crashed in the north, as, you know, probably expected. But the, the traditional malt belt in that Midlands area produced most of the, the malt-grade barley, which, again, was quite extraordinary because they had a... A very dry year. It was probably just the the barley being early maturing. You know, the plants pulled back on their potential early when the heat came on, and they didn't set too many sites either. So we had a lot of a lot of the barley made um, made malt in that. In fact, most of the malt came from that region. It's the old traditional malt area. Once you got away from that, the barley did fall away, and there was virtually no malt in the rest of the state. But again, the, the barley um, it was feed, but it didn't. You know, still had relatively good retention. I suppose the other interesting thing is the canola. It was quite interesting in that the, there was about a 20% reduction in area from 22, you know, which was probably to be expected because of the, you know, 2022 20, was the largest plant of canola ever, you know, 2.2 million hectares or just over that. But there was only about a 14% um, reduction in tonnage from last year with a 20% reduction in area. So what that says is that the, the canola still went quite well where it was grown. So growers were quite strategic in where they put their canola in, and yes, the canola in the low rainfall areas, um, you know, was in that that were in that hundred mil or less, you know, zone, just was very poor. 
Um, but once you got away from that, the, the canola was in some cases yielded close to what the wheat did. Very interesting season, that's for sure. On the Country Hour, Michael Lamond is with you. He's the author of the Giwa Crop Report. And um, the last time we spoke with you about a month ago, Michael, we were talking about a 14.5 million tonne crop across the state. Is it, well, firstly, is anyone still harvesting? Is there still more to come in? Yeah, there is. I mean, I was speaking to um, Kelly Todman um, a day or so ago at CBH and she was just going through the bins that were open. Yeah, there's still there's still um, grain trickling in, um, particularly in the southern regions. There's still, um, even in Espen Square that's been finished for a while, you know, there's still grain coming in to the main port. But, yeah, as you go into the great southern areas, there's still this grain coming in. It, it's, it's you know, it's predict, you know, it'll probably just be a trickle after Christmas. The 14 and a half is, was probably a bit optimistic, but, you know, it looks like now. So what, what happened, as, as the harvest progressed further uh, at, you know, in the south southern regions of the state, it was obvious that the top wasn't there on the crops. You know, they just didn't have that top end that was expected. There was probably more frost that licked through all those southern areas and we really clocked earlier on. So that's really taken, you know, a percentage off it and it's, in, you know, 5% top um, taking of the top off the, the yield can have, a you know, quite a big impact on the total tonnes. So, so that's occurred and... Yeah, so in, in just over the over a large area, it hasn't gone quite as well as most people thought. So, the the tons I think will be will be struggling to get the fourteen and a half. It's probably going to be somewhere between fourteen and fourteen and a half of total grain produce. Not sure what CBH, um, you know, we're actually will we deliver there, but it'll probably be under thirteen. Could be well under thirteen, but again, you know, there'll still be grain coming in for the next few weeks, but. Yeah, but there's still these deliveries occurring, and um, but that'll that'll um, that'll really back off. I would would think after Christmas. So if you talk about 14 million tons, I mean compared to last year, it is quite a significant decrease. But can you put it into perspective in in previous years? Um, you know, when when were we last looking at about a 14 million ton crop? When was that a record? Well, yeah, well, that's. Oh, I thought you'd ask me that, Michelle. <laughs> The, um, I haven't, I was thinking exactly that because, you know, 14 or 15 million tonnes 10 years ago was a great crop, was a really good crop, you know, when we only had six and a half million hectares of crop grown. So it's not that long ago that actually wasn't too bad. I mean, when we had you know, you know, nearly nine million hectares or about 8.8 or something million hectares grown this year, so it was a bit of a drop from 22. So I suppose when you consider in that respect, you know, the increase in crop area that's going in, it, it was, it's, it is pretty low, but in historical terms, it's not. So it's interesting how it's changed. And it's changed very quickly, really, in part due to the extra crop that's going in. And we, I think we'll continue to see more crop going in. There'll be um, adjustment out of livestock, obviously, from what's occurring at the moment. And that could end up, you know, we could conceivably end up with another half million hectares of crop, potential crop next year. Um, and that that'll probably keep going up. So, yeah, I mean, in historical terms, fourteen or fifteen is not really a bad year. Michael Lamon, thanks for your time on the Country Hour today. No, that's great to have a chat, Michelle. He's the author of the Giwa Crop Report. So I guess the some of it is high quality or higher quality than expected for wheat in particular. A smaller volume, maybe not quite scraping in 14.5 million tonnes. And looking at value, the total value of this year's crop is estimated to be about 6 
billion dollars. Now, compared to last year, that is down. It was about 10 billion last year. Uh, so 6 billion this year, and it's expected to have a multiplier effect of about three times to the state's economy. If you'd like to reflect on this year's harvest as we head into Christmas, that text line, I've got it in front of me now. It's 0448922604. The SMS 0448922604. You're listening to The Country Hour. Michelle Stanley with you at 17 past 12. Australia's consumer watchdog has recommended the Wheatport Code of Conduct be axed. The ACCC made its submission to a federal review this week. Now, the Port Access Code applies to bulk grain exporting ports and it's due to expire next October. It was set up after deregulation of wheat exports and the point of it was to ensure that the big three grain operators, Grain Corp, CBH and Viterra, didn't exert undue influence over the market. But the watchdog says the code could actually prevent new port providers from entering the market. It says that there were limitations to enforcing the code and that providers weren't obliged to give the information which would allow the ACCC to really meaningfully inform a position on the competitiveness of the market. So consultation on that is over. Open. It will be until the end of January. If you'd like to take a look, you can search online Wheat Port Code Review. Just search that and you should be able to find out more. Now, across Australia, plenty of you are winding down for Christmas. Grains in the bin, the troughs are full, the cricket is about to be switched on. But where I am, up in Port Hedland, things are a little bit different to the rest of the state this time of year. One man who knows very well what Christmas is like in the Pilbara is Arnold Carter. He's 97 years old and he's lived and worked in Port Hedland since the 60s. I caught up with Arnold this morning and he says, up here, Christmas in a mining town, that's just another day. Well, to be honest, to be perfectly frank and to do it in a very quick sentence, a day at work, because <laughs> that's what it is. The, uh, there is not any great big significant, you know, alterations to the town for Christmas. It's an industrial town. And remember, the job goes on just the same here, as, uh, whether it's Christmas Day, Good Friday or Mother's Day. They still continue. It's often talked about being the powerhouse of, you know, the, the economic powerhouse of Australia is Port Hedland. And, and I'm sure on, you know, Christmas morning, there'll be bulk carriers leaving the port as there is every other day. What was Christmas like, Christmas Day like in the 60s and 70s when, you know, you were first here and, and the port was just getting up and running? What was it like back then? Oh, in those days when they had uh, entertainment up there, uh, they would just uh, take over an oval and it's say, we're having a barbecue here, we're having Christmas dinner here. And the, there was no personal invitation, you know, from an individual company. It was just, you're all invited. And, of course, uh, everybody went along there and they took along their own saxophones or their own musical instruments. In one case, one day, they arrived back there with somebody got a piano and put on the back of a truck <laughs> and that played music. Nobody listens to it because somebody across the road was playing a uh, razzatazz or something like that. <laughs> do you remember your very first Christmas in Port Hedland? Yes, I do. I certainly remember, and it was it was was like a uh, it was in a um, in a, a mess. 
up in uh, Pretty Pearl where the uh, hotel is today and it was for uh, Utah Construction who were the contractors and all it was was help yourself. It was a great big table and all the meal was on the uh, trestle and you just went along and helped yourself whatever you wanted to and then you just rushed down and keep on filling up whatever you left and that was great. There's always plenty of food there but that was my first Christmas dinner and I noticed there was no bonbons. <laughs> <laughs> and was, it, was there any local seafood? Because that's the other beauty of living in the Pilbara. We're right on the water and we've got some of the most amazing fishing just off the coast. So do you get much good seafood in the Pilbara at this time You know, over the, over the Christmases you've had? We, we used to. We used to have a fishing uh, uh, jetty here and uh, you're quite right, the prawns uh, were t- tremendous and uh, there was a fishing company, uh, Samson Fisheries, and they used to operate just off the coast here and up to the mouth of the De Grey and they used to come down here and empty their, their uh, prawns and all the other fish and what they used to do, they used to put a little sign out on the street uh, prawns cabs available today and people used to line up and they used to be one two hundred yards all down the street waiting to go and get their fresh prawns I was talking to a skipper one day he says oh, I'm coming back here again he says I just sold ten tonne of prawns <laughs> ten tonne of prawns and that's off the street of people just queuing up and going down onto the wharf getting it away go but yes to answer your question uh, 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 food uh, from the ocean was very very popular so for you and me who are enjoying the lolly run from the local fireys the volunteers um, we're enjoying our day and then I wake up on boxing day and watch a, a bit of cricket how do you go with backyard cricket do you play backyard cricket at 97 Yes, but it's a very short run. <laughs> it's, it's about 15 yards. <laughs> and what we usually do, we usually flick at the one side and let the ball run away and not run yourself. <laughs> do you still have a hot Christmas dinner, uh, even even in the 40-degree Pilbara weather? We certainly do, yeah. We start off with the salads, but then we go to the uh, uh, the hot dinner, and uh, believe it or not, if you've still got a little bit left, there's always a steam pudding coming up oh. straight after it, and that's always very popular. Merry Christmas from us at the Country Hour to you. Do you have a Christmas message for for everyone listening? Oh, I think the, uh, the uh, only thing I can say on that one would be one that uh, I've always been uh, attached with is... Uh, do unto others as you do unto yourself. Merry Christmas. Oh dear. That's Port Headlands' Arnold Carter. He was chatting with me this morning, reflecting on Christmas in the Pilbara. He's 97 and has lived here since the 60s, putting up with a very hot Christmas day. Talking about a hot Christmas day, you will get the forecast very shortly. The Weather Bureau catching up with you at just after half past 12. But I wonder what Christmas looks like for you, whether it's at the farm, the station, in town, maybe on the boat. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four is the SMS. I saw Yari Station has put up a Spinifex tree, which look it looks pretty specky. I don't think I'd fancy decorating the Spinifex myself, uh, but they've done a very good job at it, Yari. So well done uh, to them out there. Let me know what it looks like at your place at zero double four eight nine double two six zero four, and you'll also hear. 
a very special Christmas song. Last year you heard The Goats. Uh, Richard Hudson brought you The Goat Christmas. And we have a text from Joe to say that the pressure is on for Richard to find another good Chrissy song. The Goats were a highlight of 2022, Joe says. Not that their family loved them playing it all Christmas Day for them. Can you match it? We'll find out. Keep listening. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Get in touch. Now, talking trees and Christmas, a Christmas tree grower in Western Australia's southwest is pretty happy with how sales have gone in recent weeks. Joe Cullity grows and harvests the trees on his farm near Collie, about 200 kilometres southeast of Perth. He was expecting demand to be down a bit this year because so many people are struggling to make make ends meet. But he says it's tradition that seems to keep people coming back for real Chrissy trees. It's a celebration thing. I think more of a case of an essential experience. People want to uh, have a point to rally around, their family, their friends. And having a real Christmas tree with the scent and touch and the look is something which they've grown up with. So what's the past month been like for you, Joe, in terms of your business? Fast. We start uh, cutting and, and shipping and, and moving and organising people and logistics and trucks and trailers and all the other things that go into cutting trees and shipping them up to the Perth market. When do people start buying a Christmas tree? Because I imagine they don't keep for a very long time. Well, I've had people start inquiring in August. People then want to go and jump the queue and get in a week before December. But generally, we find the main sales start from about the 5th of December. And that's the time they started this year? We made a decision on the forecast for a hot summer that we would start selling on the second weekend of December. Talk me through that. What was, I mean, you say weather conditions, that sort of thing, but go into a little bit more detail for me. We thought that the very start of December, we get the odd person complaining about the tree not lasting through and you don't know how they've stored it. You get to the house and find out there's the tree sitting out there in the glaring sun uh, or they haven't kept the water up to it or whatever it be. And so we thought we'd just slow it down a bit this year and and go in on the second weekend. Is this an all-round year business, Joe? Look, we're no different to a a farmer out in Cojunup or a cherry grower in uh, Donnybrook or any other agricultural enterprise. We are doing fire breaks, pruning, preparation, weed control, continually assessing, pruning, plucking, thinning, all those things which go on in an agricultural operation. So yes, it runs all year round. And like any agricultural person, the effort you put in is what you get out at the end. Where are you selling your trees to? We predominantly sell them to the domestic market. We have four outlets in Perth. Uh, but I was speaking to a good friend of mine in the southwest and he's offered up uh, a wood yard in Picton, so we hope to start selling them in in Bunbury and in Mandurah next year. So how much are people buying a real Christmas tree for then? Well, it was an interesting question you asked me. Basically, we we sell our trees at the same rate that people sell them from cut, uh, where you go to a, a Christmas tree outlet and cut your own. But we actually sell them, another person called it trees on wheels, a day before, sometimes about 12 hours before we bring them to market and we sell them for the same price. And how much is that? Oh, they vary between 120 and generally about $200. Wow, that's 120 and $200. That's a, that's a fair bit amount of money. Look, Kate, I, I can't control the, the socioeconomic drivers that people have. It costs me 
between 15 and 21 dollars to actually cut a tree and get it up to the market and it's taken me between five and seven years to grow that tree so i don't i don't want to have a i don't want to sell a tree to someone that i wouldn't have in my own house to justify the cost that's what we think costs I can't control what people do, but I believe I'm selling something which is reasonably priced. You must have confidence, though, Joe. You know at that price, and you're saying that that sales have been okay this year, with you know external factors like cost of living and that sort of thing. You're, you're still confident that people are going to buy them. Yes, yes, I am. I think people realise that at the end of the day is we do. Obviously, we've got Facebook pages and we've got a website. But the majority of people that are coming back to us are people who have brought trees off us for 10 years uh, and expands in number. We believe we are reasonably priced. We just hope that the trees that we've sold people have, have brought joy and, and family tradition to them. And, I, and in some ways, you know, people ask me, why do you do it? And I do it because I really love seeing those families coming back and the kids and the tradition. And, and it allows people to have a rallying point in their house. And I hope I've been able to provide something which facilitates that. Well, I think our trees are nice and I hope that people enjoy them. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Same to you, Kate. That's the owner of Perth Christmas Trees, Joe Cullity. He was speaking with Kate Forrester. Half past 12 on the country hour and Helen Core is with you with some news headlines. Helen? Good afternoon. Making news today, the WA Department of Fire and Emergency Services says there's nobody to blame for yesterday's fire in Parkerville, which destroyed two homes and significantly damaged another. The blaze was sparked when a fallen tree brought down power lines on a semi-rural property in the Perth Hill suburb. It took several it took crews several hours to bring the fire under control on a day of high temperatures and strong winds. The United Nations says Gaza is facing catastrophic levels of hunger and risks famine if the conflict with Israel continues. Some food is getting in, but it's only a fraction of what's needed. A vote on a draft Security Council resolution calling for another halt in the fighting has again been delayed. And the Prime Minister is backing Australian cricketer Usman Khawaja after the International Cricket Council reprimanded him him for wearing a black armband without permission during the first test against Pakistan in Perth. Kawaja wore the armband in what he says was an expression of personal bereavement and not as a political statement. More news as usual at one. Thank you very much, Helene. It's 29 to 1. Michelle Stanley with you on the Country Hour. If you'd like to get in touch, the SMS is always 0448 922 We will be continuing to talk a, a bit about Christmas and also you'll get a treat from Richard Hudson, um, the... Uh, the next line in the classic Christmas carols that he plans to bring you. We had goats at this time last year. You'll find out what he's going to bring a little bit later on. First, though, let's get the weather with the Bureau of Meteorology. Caroline Crow is with you this afternoon. Caroline, can we start in the Southwest Land Division? We still have some serious fires burning. What's the forecast in the Southwest Land Division for the weekend and beyond? Yeah, so at the moment uh, there's a trough uh, sitting through uh, inland central parts of the state and it's extending a branch uh, towards the uh, southwest. Uh, so it's 
goes towards Perth and then kicks off the coast um, sort of in the in the southwest corner. So um, pretty much what we're seeing at the moment is if you're southeast of the that trough line, you've got generally southeasterly winds uh, and sort of on the northwestern side, we've seen that westerly kick through. So pretty much the, the border line for the westerly at the moment is sort of it's extended through Perth and out to uh, getting uh, near the Perth Hills now. Um, a little bit further south, uh, we're getting sort of um, Bunbury still in a southeasterly sort of in that area there, uh, but we will see a bit of a southwesterly uh, sea breeze come through uh, during that area during the afternoon. And then as you get further south towards the south coast, uh, that Windy Harbour area, uh, we've got southeasterly winds uh, in that section there. Now, what's going to happen? Um, Today also there is the, the slight chance of getting a thunderstorm in the, the southwest. It should be inland from the coast, um, but in the southwest corner we could see just a, an odd uh, thunderstorm later on this afternoon or evening, and that's in the southwest corner, um, extending just getting into the Great Southern and possibly into the lower west. But as I mentioned, it should uh, remain just inland from the coast. Uh, if we do get anything uh, in that area, um, coming into tomorrow... What's going to happen, or coming into Saturday and on Sunday, uh, we're going to see that trough uh, start moving, that branch start moving a little bit further north, and we'll see a return of easterly winds generally through most parts of the southwest land division. Um, tomorrow they will uh, start to freshen a little bit, but the, the gustier day and the fresher day will be on Sunday. Um, with those easterly winds. Uh, so we're looking at warm temperatures as well. Temperatures are, are sitting uh, quite above average and going to continue above average until uh, Monday. The trough is just sitting off the coast, so still some easterly winds, but uh, it will move inland uh, during the day. So we will see a uh, southwesterly change uh, through those southwestern parts and uh, the west uh, coast coming into Monday. And then on Tuesday, the trough is actually uh, extending quite well uh, inland. Uh, so we're going to see those uh, westerly winds and a milder a change extend through uh, most parts of the southwest land division coming into Tuesday. So the next couple of days, uh, still seeing uh, a return of easterly winds uh, and then that change coming uh, on Christmas Day, um, but extending more extensively uh, through on Tuesday. Uh, in regards to... Yep. Sorry, continue. I was going to say, just with the change on Tuesday, we could see some uh, light showers or some drizzle about the south, the western south coast, that Albany area up to Busseton, could even extend a little bit further into the lower west as well. With the winds, you mentioned southeasterly winds in particular today, how strong are they likely to be today and over the next couple of days? Yeah, so uh, for... Um the, yeah, the next couple of days, it's, it's moderate uh, sort of southeasterly winds at the moment. They're going to be fresher along the south coast. Um, but uh, coming into uh, Saturday, uh, we could see some gustiness of 50 to 60 kilometres per hour about the, the hills in the morning overnight tonight and into tomorrow morning, but mostly on Sunday. So about the hills, the Perth hills, we could see uh, sort of getting up to 70 kilometres per hour, um, wow. still moderate to fresh winds. And then we'll gradually see that moderation through Monday um, and then, yeah, the change into that west, more dominant westerly wind regime on Tuesday. Right. So any idea when conditions might become more favourable for firefighters? Yeah, well, at the moment with the northwesterly, we've got the humidity a little bit uh, high at the moment. Uh, and, I mean, it hasn't been as hot today um, about the, the western coast. Um, 
with uh, sort of the, the temperature wise, uh, we are going to see it warm up. I guess one of the things is that um, we, we are looking at a persistent period of high fire danger ratings as well in the southwest. So with those easterly winds continuing the warm temperatures, it's not uh, sort of getting into the, the upper bounds, but we're still seeing persistent high uh, fire danger ratings continuing. And it's probably not really until sort of that later on Monday, maybe even sort of more Tuesday, uh, where we see those uh, West to southwesterly uh, winds become more dominant and those mild, milder conditions. So on Tuesday, temperatures for the west coast uh, are looking sort of more uh, getting into the, the mid-20s. So you're looking at quite a bit of a sort of drop compared to what we're looking at sort of at the moment and has been uh, this weekend um, getting into the southwest corner, sort of temperatures around that mid-20s as well. So 24, 25 degrees compared to on Sunday, sort of looking into the low uh, 30s, uh, Bustleton's around the 35 uh, degree mark and sort of um, Collie's 34 uh, through that area so there. So a few days yet until that, that change. Um, yes, how about that's right. In how about in yep. northern and eastern forecast districts? It's been quite hot and humid, very humid actually in Port Hedland. Yeah, it has been. And there's been a little bit of uh, cloud about around uh, the Port Hedland and that uh, Pilbara Coast uh, this morning as well. Um, it's a it very ha- beautiful walk along the water, I'll say, with that cloud. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so up north, uh, so starting with those temperatures, it is hot. Uh, the, those conditions are going to continue. Temperatures are getting into uh, the, the low to mid uh, 40s uh, through parts of the Kimberley and into the Pilbara, into the interior and into uh, parts of the gas going as well and those overnight temperatures are pretty high as well sort of sitting 25 and even above 28 degrees in some places so uh, it's it's been hot and it's been continuous and there is actually a, a heat wave warning uh, for a, a, those areas uh, in the Kimberley, Pilbara, interior and northeastern parts of the Gascoigne and that looks as though it might continue still for a couple of days before we see a little bit of a moderation. Uh, from a from a weather perspective uh, through the, the forecast period of the next four days, four or five days, we're looking at uh, thunderstorms continuing through the Kimberley, getting into central and eastern parts of the Pilbara, northern interior uh, and then uh, they are going to extend uh, Further south uh, into uh, northeastern parts of the Gascoigne, getting into northeastern parts of the goldfields, and right down to the Eucla potentially uh, this afternoon and evening. And then, as I spoke about that trough moving north, so as that trough moves north, they'll clear the Eucla. Uh, for, for a period but extend potentially a little bit further west into um, sort of the eastern half of the Gascoigne and the northern half of the gold field. So sort of areas, large areas of uh, showers and thunderstorms continuing over the next couple of days and sort of just um, clearing a little bit in that southeast as that uh, trough is moved north. Uh, one thing I guess with the thunderstorms as well is that there potentially won't be a lot of rainfall with them so we could see some, um, yeah, just more sort of dry thunderstorms uh, through parts mostly in those uh, more western and southern uh, areas. And you mentioned the the heatwave in this part of the world at the moment. Are there any other warnings around the state that we need to be aware of? Yeah, currently there's uh, coastal wind warnings as well. So uh, that's around the Pilbara uh, coast, sort of uh, between the Carrara and uh, Port Hetland area there in the, the westerlies. It uh, could be pretty, a uh, bit fresher and stronger over the next couple of days and also in the southwest corner. So uh, from about Bunbury around through to the Lewin coast and also along the Esperance coast.
Thank you very much, Caroline Crow from the Bureau of Meteorology. Merry Christmas to you, Caroline. It's 20 to 1 on the Country Hour. Now let's check in with the Christmas caroler himself, Richard Hudson. Has there been much rain around the state today? No, the rain summary won't take long at all. In the Kimberley, the most was Bedford Downs, airstrip that had two. And then in the south, it was only in the southwest, Walpole Forestry had four and Windy Harbour five, and that was it. There's still lots of bushfires burning in Western Australia at the moment, and one has just been escalated, or it's actually just been discovered, and it's at an emergency warning level straight away. It's in place in the shires of Serpentine, Jarradale and Murray. So it's for people west of the southwestern highway and east of Yangadi Road between Henderson Road in the north and Lakes Road in the south in parts of Keysbrook, Nambilup and North Dandalup. So if you're in that area, there is a danger. There's a need to act immediately to survive and there is a threat to lives and homes. And the fire started near the intersection of Hopeland Road and Elliott Road in Keysbrook. And that bushfire is moving fast and it is out of control and unpredictable. If you're in that area, keep listening to ABC Perth local radio because they will be giving regular updates. And, of course, you can get the latest and more in-depth information on that on the Emergency WA website. There are three fires that we've been talking about a lot yesterday and they're still at a watch and act level. One in the Shire of Manjimup, so that's in place for people bound by Gumnut Road, Richardson Road, Lewis Road and Warren Beach Track in the south, Tattenham Road and Pemberton Northcliffe Road in the east, Barker Road, Larkin Road to Larkin Bridge in the north, then southwest to the properties along the Warren River, including the Colonels, to the coast in parts of Calcup, Crowia and Mirup. Chatted to a farmer at Calcup who was saying the fire was only a few k's away and they're definitely still in the danger zone. He's uh, hoping it doesn't escalate. The bushfire is burning in a northwesterly direction. It's not contained or controlled yet. There's also a bushfire watch and act in place in the Shire of 2J. Uh, that's for people in the area bounded by Parkland Drive, including Sinclair Place and Donegan View, Malcup Brook Road, Malcup Brook and Julemar Road. So that's in parts of Julemar and West 2J. And the other watch and act is in the Shire of Mundaring. So that's in place for people bound by Richardson Road, Byfield Road, Riley Road and Granite Road in parts of Parkerville. Uh, Certainly lots of fire news around. And again, if you need any more information and you're in mobile range, in internet range, just do a search for Emergency WA and on the homepage you'll get the latest. Those fires that are of the most serious threat are at the very top of the website. With all those fires that were burning yesterday, that's probably where the majority of the media attention was. But Believe it or not, the state government dropped a, uh, a bit of a media release yesterday, but they did it quietly. So the state government has decided not to proceed with plans to consolidate six separate pieces of legislation that govern Western Australia's water resources management system. Water Minister Simone McGurk says that decision has been made following feedback from water users and stakeholders. Trevor Whittington is the CEO of WA Farmers. Trevor... What's your reaction to this announcement by the Minister just yesterday? Uh, A a media drop uh, on the day or two before we all head off to Christmas holidays. There's fires all over the country and um, it just reeks of 
the government does not want something to be uh, discussed long, long and widely in the media. You have been taking a close look at this and you're familiar with what was trying to be done. I mean, these reform plans were first announced back in 2006. What were they designed to do, the, the proposed changes? The original uh, push was for consolidation of water management, very much driven from the eastern states, but uh, the whole approvals process as you know, the, the, the country is running out of water and the pressures for uh, a limited resource. And in Western Australia, we've got six different acts, some of them going back to 1909, Waters and Rivers, uh, 1914, Rivers and Irrigation Act, and a big push uh, to modernise them. And uh, this has now gone through multiple governments and even more ministers. Would it be fair to say the two parties that could possibly be upset with this would be traditional owners and anyone who is passionate about the environment? Because I believe part of the reform was looking at maybe allowing traditional owners to be included in discussions on water allocations, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Now, this is an interesting one. Normally, we would be the ones jumping up and down going, the government's you know, bearing their bad news and we're very upset. But in this particular case, we're going to come out and say uh, we think the government's done the right thing. We think uh, Minister McGurk, who's been actually very good uh, since she's been there the last 12 months uh, as Minister for Water, has actually listened carefully to uh, the farming industry and the mining and the, and the property development industry, as has the Premier. And uh, they have obviously decided it's not worth pursuing legislation, which we think has been riddled with embedding Indigenous control over water and the veto rights and empowering the Greens environmental groups, we think uh, this government has uh, decided this is not good for the state. So we're just going to go back to legislation that's been tried and tested over the last 100 years. And I mentioned the Greens because the other element of the, the, the proposed reforms was that climate change was going to be taken into consideration with any future water planning, wasn't it? Yeah, very much so. And we all know that the Greens love a good catastrophe. And so they would absolutely throttle the irrigation uh, and farmers and access to water and the miners. And uh, that's the last thing the state needs. So you know, if uh, the, the current system is very much based on science, we don't need any uh, exaggerated emotion embedded in legislation. And we think the Premier as he's done with the heritage legislation. He said, look, this is not good for the state. So he stepped in and rolled that. He stepped in and rolled the big push by the Greenpeace and uh, to back Indigenous groups to shut down the big multi-billion dollar Scarborough gas development up north and saying what they call green lawfare. You know, we just don't need that in Western Australia. So two weeks ago, he stepped into that, which is good. And we think the Premier with the ministers had looked at this and gone, we don't need to go down this path. So it's, it's a good outcome. So Water Minister Simone McGurk in her statement yesterday said the current laws are workable and therefore legislative change is not required when there are other immediate practical avenues to improve water security. Are you saying basically you, you agree with her? Absolutely. We're saying it's a common sense response to, and as we've seen with governments, once you start uh, amalgamating, looking at rewriting legislation, you've got all the you know, Murdoch graduate uh, you know, environmental lawyers, progressives 
sitting there going, we'll, we'll embed uh, changes which will slow down the development of the state, uh, make it more difficult to, uh, for private landholders to access water or uh, manage their farms or develop mines or develop property. And um, it's not helpful for a, a Premier heading into an election in a bit over 12 months. He's clearing the decks, no doubt, um, washing the decks, uh, as you could say. And this is part of it, along with the heritage. And he's obviously looked at uh, the noise that the opposition, Libs and Nats, have made on this and said, well, we don't need to fight all through next year on this. Is everything as hunky-dory as what you're making it out to be, though? Because from what I can gather, the intent of the reform of the legislation was to simplify things, simplify the way that water's managed. If we're not going to have the reform, are we going to be you know, tied down with all sorts of red tape still? Yeah, they promised us that the benefits of the new heritage legislation would be to simplify things too. It's a, a nice uh, way to bring stakeholders on board, but the devil's always in the detail. And we weren't seeing, you know, once you start giving Indigenous groups, like they've done in New Zealand, uh, veto rights, which was very much part of uh, a subtle undercurrent in this legislation, that was not going to make anything simpler. Uh, look, the, the existing laws, you know, are, are clunky and, you know, it's an effort to get your way through them, but they're workable. We'll have to leave it there, Trevor. But on behalf of the country, have a fantastic Christmas. Do you have any plans? Uh, retreat back up to the farm and hope it's not going to be too hot and hope there's not going to be too many fires. Uh, yeah, certainly back that last statement, yeah, I hope everyone's... Christmas is not only nice and relaxing, but also a safe one, and for you too. And same for you and all your listeners. That's WA Farmer CEO Trevor Whittington speaking with Richard Hudson. It's 10 to 1 on the Country Hour. You'll get a taste of Richard Hudson's infamous Christmas carols before 1 o'clock, so make sure you keep listening for that. Uh, first, though... It's been a really busy week for Australia's largest barramundi farm. Humpty Doo Barra in the NT says it's having its biggest Christmas harvest on record. The Country Hours' Max Rowley went to see all of the action alongside Managing Director Dan Richards. So uh, this is the uh, getting towards the end of our, uh, our big Christmas harvest. So uh, the team are just, uh, you know, the fish are already chilled and they're just grading them and uh, packing them to head off to market for Christmas. How long do these fish take to grow to this size? They're, what? The large barramundi we're looking at here are sort of up to five kilos and they're, uh, they're about two years old. So we've got fish, everything from uh, tiny little barramundi larvae all the way through to uh, these market-ready fish uh, in the business. All right, so it takes a lot of time to get a barra onto someone's plate. That's right, yeah, we've got millions of fish that are, you know, have come through the production line over the last few years through the farm that are uh, getting ready to, you know, hit you know, big events like this, like Christmas. And so Christmas is one of the busiest times of the year for you? Absolutely. Christmas and Easter are the, uh, the big peaks. So this is actually our biggest Christmas harvest ever and uh, comes at the end of what has been a fairly tough year in the market with a fair bit of oversupply uh, and pretty poor prices. So it's uh, great to get a result like this at this time. Biggest ever. How many tonnes of barrow is that? 
So this week we're doing about 150 tonnes of fish uh, out, which is, uh, which is a lot for a Christmas. You know, this uh, last Easter we did 180 tonnes, so that was the biggest week ever, but um, it's the yeah, biggest Christmas and the fourth biggest week we've ever done. As you said though, prices have been down for Barra this year. What kind of year has it been for the farm? Look, we're, um, we've built a fantastic team here. We grow a beautiful product uh, that's really reliable, uh, consistent, high-quality products. So, you know, the people and the fish and the team have all been going great. But um, out in the market, uh, there's been a bit of oversupply this year, which is uh, leading to some of the uh, competition dropping prices very low, um, probably selling fish below their cost of production, which is obviously not something that's sustainable long-term. How does that look into next year then? So uh, we're not sure exactly how long it's going to go. Um, it appears that a number of the farms in North Queensland have been uh, seriously impacted by the, uh, by the recent flooding and uh, so we feel for them uh, and that, that will inevitably result in some reduction in supply into that market at the moment, in the, at least in the short to medium term. Uh, here in the Australian market, the federal government's announced the uh, mandatory country of origin labelling for food service uh, around the country is uh, is on the way, and that will, uh, you know, in a market where currently 60% of the barramundi consumed in Australia is imported, uh, the ability to be able to for Australian producers to be able to differentiate their product in the market, you know, have that truth in labelling so consumers know what they're buying, we believe will have a positive impact on uh, all Australian seafood markets. So that might at least help you more domestically in the year to come or the years to come? Correct, that's right. That will assist with, uh, you know, dom domestic demand and the ability for Australian domestic producers to differentiate their product from lower cost imported products. And so really busy week in the lead up to Christmas. Uh, does it quieten down a bit after we reach that hump? For sure. So the team have been um, you know, working really hard to uh, hit these uh, high volumes over the last uh, little while, although we've got a lot of uh, systems and efficiencies in place that uh, you know, the harvest guys are like, oh, we didn't, we didn't even notice. You know? So, uh, so that's, been, that's been really positive. But yeah, now we're coming into a period where uh, we're really encouraging people to have a little bit of a rest. Uh, we'll get a, a couple of you know, slightly extended breaks over the Christmas New Year period and really encouraging our people to uh, have a much-deserved break. That is Dan Richards from Humpty Doo Barramundi Farm speaking with Max Rowley. 150 tonnes being harvested in the week leading up to Christmas. That is a lot of fish. It's five to one on the Country Hour. <laughs> Hi, this is Tom Bodet from Manger 6. We know you've been traveling a lot this holiday season and you've probably been told there's no room at the inn. Well, that's just not the case here at Manger 6. Why, for just 29 drachma, we'll put you up in a warm, comfortable stable with plenty of fresh milk for the newborn. There's even individual stalls for your mules, camels, or whatever you happen to be driving across the desert. And in case unexpected visitors decide to drop in on you, shepherds, wise men, holy ghosts, it's not a problem at Manger 6. There's plenty of frankincense and myrrh to go around. This is Tom Bodette from Manger 6 reminding you, there's always room at this inn. We'll even leave a star out for you. 
Tough times, the ABC running ads, who'd have thought? Um, but spoiler, that wasn't Richard Hudson's famous Christmas carol. you still got to wait for that. A couple of minutes away from one, Michelle Stanley with you right up until one o'clock. And it is that time of year, the Friday before Christmas, we often like to sit back and reflect on the 12 months that have passed. And for many, 2023 wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Dry conditions, floods, fires, primary producers have been through it all across WA this year. And Jenny Gailey from the rural charity Drought Angels says the sector deserves from some recognition, especially at Christmas. For all of those primary producers out there, um, on behalf of all Australians, um, we would just love to truly thank you for putting the food on our table and the clothes on our back because without you, um, you know, we wouldn't be able to, you know, celebrate our Christmas meal. Truly grateful to all of those primary producers out there and wishing everyone a very Merry Christmas and a safe New Year as well. That is Jenny Gailey from the rural charity Drought Angels with a lovely Christmas message. And it's a Queensland-based group, but it's hoping to expand its footprint in WA to support farmers in need here as well. Drought Angels provides financial assistance to primary producers who have struggled through through natural disasters, drought, fire, flood, that kind of thing. And you will hear more about their plans to expand into WA. You'll hear about them in the new year. But in the meantime, if you would like to contact Drought Angels, best to head to their website, droughtangels.org.au. And if you are in need of some extra support, there's also Lifeline on 13 11 14. The CBH Shareholders Association is calling on the state's main grain handler to reconsider its strategic direction. Association Chairman Bill Cowan claims the CBH board has made a strategic error for the second year in a row. He says one area of concern is the profit-making direction of the co-op's marketing and trading arm. Bill Cowan says by focusing on this profit instead Instead of maximising prices for growers, other traders could potentially gain more of the market share. He says the CBH board's policy disincentivises grain growers from selling their grain through M&T. And as such, an increasing percentage of growers will not have contributed to the system upgrades, but will benefit from them. That coming through from the CBH Shareholders Association couple of minutes away from one o'clock. Now, as I've been mentioning, I mentioned at the start of the show, the end of last year's final Country Hour program before Christmas Day, our executive producer, Richard Hudson, played a song. It was Silent Night, sung by goats. Richard, you've set the bar pretty high. What do you have for us this year? Uh, yeah, well, unfortunately, the goats were unavailable this year because Aww. since we launched their career, they've actually been on tour non-stop. I bet. Mainly in WA's rangelands, of course. But No uh, kidding. This year has been quite a challenging year for a lot of people, and myself included, as you would know. And I just thought it would be... I don't know, more appropriate if we played something a bit more sensible so that we can thank those people who need to be thanked, all the people who have featured on the Country Hour, the people who have given us those stories and the people who have contributed to emergency broadcasting and our whole team. So, yeah, here's just a, a little thank you and something that's just a bit more, I don't know, subtle.
You have outdone yourself, Richard. Thank you for that. From all of us at the Country Hour, Merry Christmas.